If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Let me end on the NA. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And as always, our lovely, talented co-host, Miss Kimberly Dillon. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Excited to be here from rainy L.A. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, let, before we jump into the weather, let, let's introduce our guest. Uh, we have Mr. Travis Higginbotham, who I believe is the VP of production at Harborside. So welcome to the show. Did I get that right? <laughs> yes, certainly did. No, I appreciate it. And yeah, uh, happy to be here. So you're you're based uh, in Northern California, no? Yeah, in, okay. in the Salinas Valley. In Salinas Valley. So what's the weather like right now? It has been awful the past two weeks, actually. <laughs> you know, we have, we have been craving rain, and the past two weeks it has almost rained every single day. So um, awful meaning, you know, in the greenhouse regarding mold on cannabis and everything else. But uh, in general, we need the rain. So it, it's, you know, what it is. I mean, we need the rain, but isn't it like too much rain at this point? <laughs> um, at least from the group that's here, they said this is the most rain they've seen at you know a given time over the past three years. So it has it has literally literally dumped. We've had roads flooded, roads falling apart here in Salinas. We had hail yesterday. So yeah, weather's been interesting. Can you tell our audience a little bit about Harborside? What is Harborside? Yeah, so um, Harborside was one of the first um, licenses granted here in California. Um, I think we, we sold the very first gram of cannabis at, on the retail level to the market. Uh, we are vertically integrated. We have um, multiple retail locations throughout the Bay, as well as a 40-acre um, production campus in Salinas, and that's what I run. Um, we have about 205,000 square feet of greenhouse canopy here in Salinas that we manage as well as uh, all post-harvest um, processing. So drying, curing, packaging, and all uh, retail and wholesale distribution is from this site also. Right, and your role is uh, overseeing production. So what does that entail? Yeah, so I, I work very close with the, the retail teams and the wholesale distribution teams. And right now that not only is Harborside, but also Sublime. Because um, we just now recently uh, acquired Sublime roughly a month, month, two months ago. 
Um, but I, I manage pretty much all crop-based production and forecasting and distribution of that finished material. So um, all cultivation um, and currently all processing falls under uh, production. Got it. So it's from growing to curing to making a decision what to do with that, either to have it as flour or to process it into other products, correct? Yep. I, I would say 90 percent of it is sold on the market as flour products and most of the typical categories that we see now, eights, quarter ounces, half ounces, um, like that. We do do a decent portion of fresh frozen, but that's not a big portion of our business. Uh, but the majority of the product that we do cultivate is sold as flour. Got it. So where did you grow up? Oh, gosh. Uh, my father was military. So yeah. by the time I went to college, I actually moved about 18 times, um, grew up in Germany, um, and uh, I've lived truly all over the place. So my family's from South Carolina, though, from the, the deep south. Okay. Uh, and you went to school like all over in those 18 places or primarily you or Yeah. You know, elementary school and middle school and high school, I probably was at, I don't know, three different per um, but uh, for college, I uh, predominantly went to Clemson for my bachelor's in horticulture, and I got my master's at Virginia Tech. Um, mm. So that's where I went to college. And then in Germany, did you live there as like a, a little kid, or did you live there as like a, a teen? Yeah, I uh, I lived there for the first nine years of my life. So, um, and we we moved around at least four four different places throughout Germany. So, so uh, and uh, do you speak German? <laughs> Supposedly, I did fluently when we lived there, but I, right. I could probably say, you know, my name is or where's the bathroom at this point. Right. And that's about it. So, uh, so growing up like in a military family, uh, how was uh, how was your uh, home life? I'm just curious. Uh, was it super strict? And do you have uh, like siblings or uh, because you had to move around a lot? But yeah. your, your father was uh, uh, in the military, too. What rank was he like? Yeah, he retired as uh, what we call full bird or a full bird colonel. Got a um, colonel, right? Yeah, yeah I read so that. I believe he was in for twenty eight years, and mm -hmm. for, for the majority of, of my life with my parents, um, he was in the military. He retired after I went to college. So, um, I would say, you know, I, I think there is a there's a mentality that assumes that uh, growing up in the military family is pretty um, structured and disciplined, and you know the things that come along with being in the military. But um, I. My family life was, I think, you know, the best it could be, and I certainly can't complain. I will say that my father was probably deployed up to six times, each for a year. Um, so he was he was quite all over the place and had a brigade and battalion command at, at different times. Um, but overall, you know, I, I was very close in my family because we didn't live anywhere long enough to truly make friends outside of the family. So we had a very close family, and I have a brother who's about eight years younger than I am. Um, and yeah, loved. We loved it. That's all we knew. We moved like crazy, um, uh, and to sit back now and think, "Gosh, we actually did all of that," is kind of kind of crazy to think about. But uh, but yeah, it's it's all we knew. So. Well, I really respect it because I grew up in uh, Colorado Springs, two blocks. That's where I was born. Actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> two, Fort Carson. Yep. Two blocks from Air Force Academy. So how I grew up was that we always had to sponsor a cadet because they didn't have any okay. family members per se. And so I just, even though, well, my family was in the military, but dishonorably uh, removed. <laughs> Discharged. Discharged. Dishonorably discharged. No, nobody's listening to this, Kimberly. Don't even worry about it. You can say it. Dishonorably discharged. 
got kicked out. Uh, But I always had a respect for the families and moving. And there was just always new kids in my high school. That was just the experience. And so it was my job that was like the welcome committee of like getting to know you. But was also stressful is like, then they'd move. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I know it was. It was a constant, I don't know, you know, should you invest the time and get to know somebody because you know you're going to move. But at the same time, we made the most of it. And so for those similar to you, I say thank you, because without without those who welcomed us, it was would have been much harder. So, Yeah, well, I went to three different high schools, too, but I had nothing to do with military. I just kept getting kicked out. So that's <laughs> well, thank you for yeah, adding well, that story, Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> just what wanted, wanted to relate, you know. Yeah, yeah, still pretty different schools. Yeah. So, so, Travis, how did you get into just cultivation in general? Did you have an interest in plants? Because I like horticulture is what is horticulture? Maybe uh, we can start yeah. with that. No, and I, yeah, I've, I've certainly been asked this before, and people know I come from a military family. You know, the extent that my family has on understanding horticulture was mowing grass, right? Um, they. You know, when I first wanted to get into plants, my parents thought I'd just be landscaping or mowing grass the rest of my life, or therefore thinking I was going to be doing back-breaking work or something in the rest of my life. And so they didn't quite know what to think about it, nor just knew enough about it to make an educated decision on their preference. Um, but no, I grew up having to make my own money from the start. And so I, I did that by having a landscaping company. Um, and so I, I had a, a small group of guys that did contracts for like... Uh, um, chilies and you know, cemeteries and, and other groups. And so I started to learn about plants that way and really fell in love with it. And then also went through Boy Scouts and all of that, you know, being in the, in the military. Oh, world. Well, what was your troop? I had multiple. Okay. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you have to, because you were moving. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So had, had multiple and um, really met, met some good people through that. But, uh, but anyway, fell in love with it and uh, ended up doing the right person's yard during college. And that got me a, a scholarship at Clemson um, and uh, worked with a um, now, a, you know, who I would consider to be a mentor of mine during college. His name was Dr. Jim Faust Kind of brought me under his wing. And I was a research assistant there at Clemson with him for about three years. Um, and that really opened the door and opened my eyes to the, the commercial horticulture market here in the U.S., um, and so when you think about horticulture, horticulture is a, a subset off of agriculture, right? And, uh, you know, it, it encompasses like the growing of trees, growing of shrubs and growing of all the floricultural plants or flowers. And so I had a focus on ornamentals, annual and perennial crops, pretty much everything that you could buy at Lowe's, Walmart and Home Depot. Um, and, uh, and started to, my first job out of college was uh, leading research for one of the largest growers in the country. They had about uh, one point two million square feet out of Virginia, um, but working on annuals and perennials and very closely with loads on product development of new genetics and new varieties for the market. So does that, that's what I was going to ask you. So does that mean uh, crossing genetics and creating new varietals and uh, and uh, strengthening those, making sure that they're the, uh, the ones that are going to last, you can continue cloning those? Like, I'm just, I'm curious myself because horticulture, you know, it means, like you said, it's so vast. I I just want to get a little more granular. Sure. So it kind of depends on, for one, what crop you're growing and and how your system is, is built. So within horticulture, there is a lot of old, old markets, right? Cut flower production, floricultural crop production. 
And because of this, you have different business models that fit into pretty much every single stage of production. So you could have a single business model that is a stock producer and ships millions of cuttings across the world that other growers buy, root, and then sell to retailers. Um, you could be completely integrated and have your own stock production in-house, take your own cuttings, root it yourself, flower it yourself, and distribute it yourself. But within mature ornamental production, you have pretty much different business models to fit into all of these different facets at the scale at which it is now. Um, at the grower that I worked at, we didn't do any stock production, um, but I did work with probably 50 different breeders from across the world. We would receive new genetics from them every year, trial them in the greenhouse and in the field, and then bring in large retailers, uh, different grocery stores and Lowe's, and we would evaluate the performance of these genetics together, make decisions on then what to launch the next year. Yeah, I have I have a, a brown thumb. So I, I'm, <laughs> I was, I'm always trying to learn. Uh, I download this one app uh, that's going to like tell me uh, if the leaves are this color, this means too much. Water. So I'm always trying to figure out and like uh, I have like touch the soil and if the soil. And by the way. Cannabis is completely different than my uh, home plants. When I grew cannabis in my in my closet, I didn't have the same kind of challenges they do with like regular house plants. The soil feels dry. I added some water. In two days, the leaves start turning brown. So my overwatering the roots is that what's going on? Because I, you know, all these different things. So I'm always trying to get pointers. Yes, Kimberly. I imagine I'm you a- cared more about those <laughs> cannabis plants than you did. <laughs> I did. I did. But but I mean, like, you're right. But I didn't there wasn't it wasn't the same kind of you're right. It wasn't the same kind of uh, where the closet plants. uh, But it wasn't like, uh, yeah, you're right. I didn't I cared a lot more. I measured that I measured, uh, you know, the different things. I don't measure anything in my. Well, I have a question for you, Travis, because you're talking primarily when you say ornamentals, primarily like the flowers I buy at Home Depot and at Lowe's. Yep. When you could you explain in layman's term like what um, innovation might look like? Because in my mind, it seems as if I'm buying the same flowers over and over again. But what I'm hearing is that every year I'm getting an updated sort of strain or like an updated peony that's better. Like, is it better because it's more vibrant? Is it better because it repels insects? Is it better? Like, what what's yeah. the improvement? I, I, I love that you're asking that question because I don't think it's conveyed clearly to the end consumer as well as it could be, right? With all of the effort and expense gone into improving genetics. So there's there's kind of two sides of this. There's the, I guess, retail appeal or the more aesthetic side of floricultural plants. And then there's this more, you know, efficiency in the greenhouse on a commercialized production scale side of genetics and plants. And so when we would help advise on new genetics that you know these large retailers would offer to the market, it would be on both sides. We would sometimes evaluate genetics on, okay, this is a new color within these petunias. Let's offer this new color as a new program. But then at the same time, let's say uh, lavender, for example, you don't have yellow lavender you know, or any other colors. So you constantly have improved performance on these plants. And so many times if let's say you go back and back to Lowe's every year and you don't really see anything new, hopefully though those plants every year would then perform even better the following. Interesting. Yeah. So it was a, there were certain, there were certain species that we were like, gosh, we got to trial more of this. Like, 
you know, it's the same thing offered year after year, but at the same time, okay, now we have disease resistance. Now we have mildew resistance. So yeah, it's uh, in those more mature markets, it's down to that detail now where cannabis, it's a free for all, you know. So, so how, how did you get it? interested in cannabis uh, in cultivation of... Uh, yeah, no, um, obviously growing up in a military family and you could assume more of a conservative mindset, um, cannabis wasn't on the radar, nor was I too interested in it, to be honest. It just wasn't something that I really came in contact with as a young adult. And um, But then obviously when I got into college, I was able to experience cannabis and use it for myself. And I, I, did, appreciate, um, I did appreciate it at that stage in my life. It helped me kind of calm down and focus and actually really help me with sleeping. I'm, I can't sleep to save my life and, and cannabis helps me sleep, which is amazing. Um, but uh, after college, I actually had nothing to do with it and ended up going into ornamentals and focusing on floricultural plants. And then uh, I took my second job, uh, which was working with Fluence Bioengineering or one of the leading LED companies uh, globally and uh, took a job to help them build a technical support program, pretty much grower consultants to help their customers. And their primary customer were cannabis cultivators. Mm. And so I was able to take my commercial horticultural expertise and now bring that over to cannabis and work with a crop that I had never worked with, but using proven principles and practices that I had learned in mature you know, markets otherwise. And so I started to fall in love with what we didn't know about this plant, and uh, and started to learn with these with these growers, and that's that's how I started to get involved with cannabis. So, what what are some of the most important factors to know when you're going into your cannabis cultivation? Is it uh, you know the type of are you going to do greenhouse first, I guess, or uh, or indoor? or something else, you got to decide that first. And then uh, obviously, based on that, the lighting source, uh, are you going to do soil? Are you going to do something else, nutrients? Like, What are some of the major elements that somebody should consider? Sure. So if we think about the three different systems, we'd be indoor, greenhouse, and outdoor. Mm -hmm. And if let's just start with outdoor, you're automatically subject to seasonality right? So you have to fully understand how to manipulate the crop or how it will be manipulated naturally based on the environment to be vegetative or go into flowering. Can I ask a quick question? Uh, because I, I'll, I'll forget this if I, if I don't. Does it matter on the actual genetics where sort of the original, I'll call it land race, even though there is no such thing anymore, but where the genetics originated, because certain genetics will do better in a four season climate versus certain other genetics that actually came from a climate that was like, you know, Hawaii or uh, South Africa. Does that matter? Sure. So I think there's a, there's a, there's two parts to that question. Um, The first part is how does, you know, uh, cannabis as a genus predominantly uh, flower or reproduce. And that's based on being um, a photoperiodic crop or being photosensitive as some call it. And so that means that you influence flowering based on the day length, ultimately the night length. So in that respect, no, it doesn't matter where it came from because you can manipulate the day length no matter the, em- the environment. Now, how, um, how certain genetics perform in certain climates based on disease based on you know, um, how, how much they like to be irrigated or soil porosity and things like this, there are genetics that are certainly, that certainly favor certain environments for overall growth, but you can manipulate reproduction the same way. 
um, no matter the environment. So, but now, now you see genetics in the market that are more, you know, people are trying to come out with day neutral or auto flower genetics, right? So we're starting to breed more uh, neutrality into the genetics. So it's not so contingent on the day length. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for the most part, most growers grow a short day crop. And when growing outdoors specifically, you have to make sure that you plant based on knowing your natural day length. Right. Um, and so that's a, that's a big deal, especially for outdoor, which I think a lot of people underestimate. Is Harborside outdoor, indoor? What, what's the mix? Greenhouse. No, we, yep. Greenhouse. And yeah, it, that is, is that our, fair to say that's like a hybrid of the two options? It is. I, I like that, that that way of thinking about it. We, you know, Harborside has a huge um, priority on being environmentally friendly. And, be, you know, with that, we use as much of the ambient environment as we possibly can instead of powering that, right? Um, and so we allow for, especially here in Salinas, we have just such a moderate temperature, moderate climate. It's pretty dry. It's not very humid. We have light for most of the year. It's very, you know, it's only rainy here in the winter for probably a month. Um, and so it's an ideal environment to grow plants in the first place, but then we do equip the greenhouses to manipulate the crop to just have that constant production as we need. My last question before Lynn. <laughs> Uh, only you, knew, you knew I was going to ask a question. Though. <laughs> only because I don't know how to, com- you know, I talk a lot, obviously I work in the industry, so I, I hear a lot of conversations about cultivation, but I will be honest, it's, it's hard for me because I don't know a lot about my food and like just normal <laughs> production. So I don't know in comparison if it's good or bad. So that leads to my question is most food in the United States grown outdoors or in greenhouse or are indoors? Like is, is cannabis that unusual? Like what is it closest to, et cetera? Yeah. So as we kind of broke out horticulture from agriculture, right, there's all these different markets that have different species of crops that they grow that are grown in all different kinds of systems. And that favors the market, favors the crop, favors the demand in the market for year-round production. It, you know, it, it's influenced in many different ways. But I would say food production predominantly is grown outdoors currently. We have a lot more going indoors into vertical farms or urban farming or things like this. Um, but like for floricultural crop production, which needs to be produced year-round, that's all at least in greenhouses. Got it. Um, I see there being a significant enough margin on that product to incentivize indoor production. For crops like that. However, cannabis is different in that way. Cannabis um, is yeah, closer to horticulture than agriculture. Yes, and at least the system and how we grow it. Yeah, and and then, and then the opposite of that, I, I would say, and, and Travis, correct me if I'm wrong. Hemp production, if they're growing fields of hemp, that's more of an ag uh, crop. Correct. If if you compare the systems, yep, I, I would agree with you. So you were saying, I interrupted you, you were saying there's three different uh, uh, ways or decisions, uh, indoor, outdoor, uh, or greenhouse. So as you made your decision and you made a good case for why greenhouse, uh, you, you know, you're know, you basically subsidizing the environment in Salinas with some uh, extra lighting or, um, uh, and, uh, and then you're making a decision on what is the medium that you're going to use to to cultivate, right? Is it going to yeah. be uh, 
So, so yeah, talk about that. So I'm, I sure. don't sound like I, I don't know what I'm talking no, about. No, no, it's an incredibly important, you know, um, the root zone of a plant is, is really its own expertise, its own facet of growing, and it needs to be understood very differently from just how you would manipulate the environment outside of the root zone. What we call the media, uh, it's, it's termed in the industry substrate, and you can have different types of substrate. So you can have, let's say, um, mined lime, limestone, which would be rock wool, um, which is not too environmentally friendly, but it is heavily used in cannabis. Um, you can have then multiple different types of carbon-based substrates. So peat, cocoa, wood fiber, redwood, rice holes, you name it. Um, and so here in Salinas, I have two different blends. And the reason we have two is just to kind of always have, you know, two options if we need them. Um, but we have a cocoa and peat blend, and then we have a redwood, wood fiber, and, and peat blend. Um, the way that we make decisions on what substrate to use is based on how how cannabis uses water um, in our system. And cannabis, from at least my experience, likes to be on the drier side compared to other crops that I've grown. And so that means that I need to have a substrate that's quite porous. And porous means that we have some air that's constantly in the soil that allows us to reset and leach the environment in the soil constantly so it doesn't get stagnant, drop the pH, cause issues. So... Uh, so when you make you make that decision uh, on using more of a porous substrate, as you mm-hmm. were saying, uh, do you make a decision on how you're going to water that crop? Are you going to water it from the bottom? Are you watering it from the top? Are you manually doing it? Like, uh, does it does it matter? No, a great question. So there, there's multiple ways we could irrigate. So let's say in floriculture, in the in the um, in the uh, horticultural market outside of cannabis, you could have irrigation booms, right? And these are, these are um, they're watering booms that pretty much move over the crop and they're automated and they spray the crop from above and that's how you irrigate the crop. With cannabis, you can't use those because you'll cover the plant in mildew or mold, especially during flowering. You could possibly use it in the vegetative stage and other stages of production, but that's not widely used in cannabis. Um, what is widely used in cannabis is the use of drippers. So drip irrigation, um, flood floors or flooding benches or watering from beneath is not widely used either because you have the possibility of uh, contamination of root disease like fusarium, pythium, phytophthora. You can spread those very easily. So we have perforated tables that allow the water to not stay present or share with, him, with other pots, and we irrigate through drippers. Um, And I would say through each stage, propagation, vegetative stage, and flowering, we irrigate differently um, at those different stages. How important are nutrients uh, to the cultivation of cannabis? And is it different nutrients based on the different stages? Um, So I, I still think there's a lot for us to learn on how cannabis uses nutrients, especially on what we currently define as quality attributes on the market, right? So right now, at least on the California market, most would say that potency sells, right? But then when I was in the hip market, in some cases where you didn't have THC, it was a CBD flower, CBD and terpenes were what was that main, you know, value to the customer. And so as it stands right now, regarding specifically just yield, and overall potency or minor cannabinoids or secondary metabolites produced from the plant. Nitrogen is a huge player. And uh, nitrogen, as well as um, phosphorus, potassium, your macros, your micros, all have to be um, in line with one another. And there are multiple, there are growers that have multiple recipes 
throughout production. Uh, but I have found that we don't use more than two recipes, one for the vegetative stage and a slight change for the flowering stage. And we manipulate that through EC, um, a measurement of, of the salts in the, in the fertilizer being delivered and the amount of fertilizer over time. So do you believe in flushing uh, in your last week so there's no nutrient lockup or anything else or because you're actually using a recipe throughout, you don't have to uh, flush in your your last uh, week so you you don't have any of that nutrient lockup or... I I haven't seen any data to support flushing as well as um, in my mind, I want to push that plant up until the day I harvest. And so we continuously fertilize all the way through um, but there is a difference between flushing and leaching. Okay. So leaching is what we do probably once a week, and it kind of resets the substrate, right? So okay. if there's any buildup over time, you just reset it, and that way you keep the plant on pace. You don't have accumulation over time. Of salt that you don't want. Makes sense. When we were talking earlier around um, the petunias <laughs> at Lowe's, and you said that there was two factors um, one is very appearance and the other one is around efficiency. I imagine appearance means, as it relates to cannabis, potency, let's just say whatever, consumer demand versus efficiency. Where does the split of your time or your thinking right now or mm-hmm. cannabis in general? Like, is it really about innovation for what the consumer feels or is it really around the efficiency of the production? Yeah. No, it's a challenge for me coming from a market that has significantly lower margins than cannabis, right? The, the, the main focus and priority there is over production efficiency. And at the same time, older markets have genetics that are stable, consistent, proven, predictable, whereas in cannabis, that is not the case. Um, and so as it stands right now, um, within Harborside and within our production, it's a focus on what the consumer wants, Right. Um, and doing it in, an, in a sustainable manner um, and doing it with some consistency annually um, so that we, you know, we don't have these peaks and valleys throughout the year. But right now, as, as a production system, we're focused on predictability, consistency, as well as ensuring the potency and the quality attributes that are tied to the products that we put on the shelf. Um, and so there's, there's certain things that we're implementing, like new variety trials, right, that allow us to trial new genetics alongside existing and make decisions on efficiencies, while at the same time making sure that whatever we bring in that's new automatically surpasses the current qualities that we offer. So does, the, does the consumer really know what they want? Because it, here's, the, here's the question. I mean, and Harborside's been on the cutting edge, uh, being, you know, an early adopter of different things, just because when you're first and, you know, Steve D'Angelo, when he was, uh, you know, part of the organization, always talked about, you know, we're, we're innovative. We're always trying to bring in new things. But if we're still doing the same thing or like, oh, we want to get 30% THC and, uh, you know, have big colas and all that stuff. What about what about the post-harvesting? What about stressing the plant? What about the curing and making sure that you get the most terpene profile out of those plants so you can actually get the best experience of the plant and not just the most THC? Are you Do you have to have like a little area where you can sort of do R&D or is that always sort of the struggle uh, between like 
production and doing uh, these so kinds of your, your first question, the customers know what they want. I, I don't think they do. And the reason I don't, <laughs> I, the reason I don't think they do is because I don't think the, the market itself does a proper job educating the consumer. And, and Harborside's working hard to, to constantly improve how we educate the consumer. Um, but a lot of that first has to come from R&D done in, in production. And so right now, and this is something I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm happy that Harborside is on board with. We have supported research at Utah State University from the plant science side on overall production efficiency, as well as enhancing quality attributes in the plant. But then we have also invested in an R&D program here in Salinas. So I have a director of research. We have a research assistant focused on variety trials, as well as trialing everything in post-harvest, like you mentioned. So at the end of the day, we can do everything we want in the greenhouse, have the yield we want, have some decent potency, but if we can't dry it properly, then it's going to be grass at retail. So we have to do everything possible to ensure quality during post-harvest, and that truly defines what our customers receive. So, so what does that look like? I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I think a lot of people talk about cultivation and horticulture, but they, they don't talk about curing. And uh, what, it, what does that look like? Uh, in for you guys at Harborside, and in general, what is some of the best practices around there? Uh, are you so? Let me let me just add to that question, uh, and I'll, I'll sort of circle back to what I asked originally about uh, the the varietals or the the cultivars having roots in a certain. I know we're crossing everything, and there's no more like indicas and sativas, and we want to get that that whole myth out of people's heads. But you have a you have some predictive measures, like you know that this plant should be expressing more limonene or more linalool, et cetera. Uh, how do you get that plant to express what they're supposed to express, I guess, is the question. So, you know, when managing production, we have very limited bandwidth, you know, to focus on some of these extremely complex questions. And that's why we have started to fund research, thankfully, at universities by some of the, you know, the best plant science specialists out there in the U.S. And we're able to sit down with them and be like, okay, here's where we think the market is going. How can we manipulate these plants to enhance these qualities? And so we're working alongside some of these researchers. And once they have some productive findings, they work with us to practically determine how to implement it in production. And so there's certain things with like management of pH, right? And how that restricts nitrogen uptake and how that actually um, influences potency and in minor cannabinoid production. And that's something that let's say we're working on with the university right now that'll influence some of these being expressed in higher quantities later. Um, but it's a, it's a constant challenge of, okay, this is the objective with production, but then gosh, I want to, I want to know so much more about what we can do with these plants, you know, alongside it. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think, and you said it right on uh, when you talked about, you know, you're, you're being driven, there's a business, right? So the, the businesses drive as much yield at the highest potency that you can possibly do. Is that actually the best product that you can create? Uh, you know, I personally would argue it's not. But until we change mindsets, that's what's happening. And, and if you look at Canada, so I was in Toronto and I went to like six different dispensaries. Nobody tests for terpenes. A lot of people don't even understand what they are. Uh, there's very limited marketing that you can do. So all they go by is, uh, oh, it's 30% THC versus 28% THC yeah. versus 
18% THC. But we had this in California back, like well, you know, I had dispensaries in the mid 2000s. That was, but now we should be so beyond that. But it seems to me that we're not. So you know, what can we do to get people? Uh, I'll give you one, one other example, and you probably are, are aware of this. So we had a, a, a small cultivation facility indoors at one, one of our dispensaries, and one of the uh, you know. It's, chemical varieties. One of the strains that we cultivated was this Gorilla Glue number four. And it was fantastic. It was it was one of the most stable, uh, you know, strains that we cultivated. And when we looked at it and we tested it, it was somewhere around 16, 17% uh, THC. But man, it was just super, super fragrant and, and just really, really. And then when we uh, wholesaled it um, out, it was like, we, it was the best seller. And they would come back and say, oh, man, this is selling out. What, like, what, what, what's, you know, what's the THC? I said, like, 16, 17. They're like, no, they couldn't believe it. I'm like, yeah, because that's not the only factor. It is everything in it. So, yes, it's a battle. But is there, is there a way that we can start uh, educating people, uh, all of us together, to say, hey, let's demand that we have a fully expressed plant. Let's test for terpenes. And then also, you know, look look at those cultivars and, and you know, maximize the yield of those as well. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, during our trials, we've seen some varieties. One of them actually that we finished last week, it was called Banana Punch. And it was low potency, 17, 18%. Like you said, I can't believe that's considered low potency, but it is. Um, and but uh, even, even though it was lower potency, we grew it full term, right? So that's a factor that needs to play. How long do you actually, you know, flower the crop or harvesting early and how that influences, you know, the qualities. But uh, we grew it full term, harvested it, went through processing, had a perfect moisture level for our standards, lower potency. And my gosh, did it smell just like banana and punch. Mm, mm. And I'm thinking to myself, if only the customer could smell this, it would be an impulse buy that second. Right. That's a great point. And, and, but at the same time, it, it comes down to marketing. It comes down to educating and it, it has to, you know, in my mind, I want to be able to convey a, a new value to the customer. I want to educate them and also share with them. Here's something else that's going to value or make your experience better. Right. And so how do we tie in the complexity of terpenes and the, the fun aspect, meaning cannabis possibly can produce terpenes that we haven't seen in other crops, right? Novel terpenes. And how is this actually facilitating the, the experience that you have that currently is based on buying only on THC? And it's just, it's this whole new narrative that we need to create for the market to mature. And then it opens wide the possibilities of what we could grow in the greenhouse instead of just focusing on potency and yield. Well, what you know, when you said that about the impulse buy, it made me think of uh, a guy that I once dated, and he made all of his money through scent marketing. And he invented diffusers that can go into ceilings. So specifically, he made his money on two clients. One was Abercrombie. So I'm not sure if you remember, but when you used to walk past Abercrombie, there was a scent. <laughs> it's neck in the face. Yeah. That... Um, yeah. And during uh, Walmart was the second biggest client during um, July 4th, Memorial Day and Labor Day, they would actually pump in the scent of smoke of hickory. Yeah. So people would yeah, buy barbecue. more meat and barbecue sauce. 
And so it made me think around sense marketing about how we could put sense in a retail store, whether it would just be your best seller in the dispensary or if there's a scent room or how you get those scents across. If scent is a big impulse driver, how do we give that experience? Because yeah. really, when I went to a dispensary the other day, you know, and it was marketed towards women, which on one hand, amazing because it was beautiful. But what it really meant was that like all the flower is just like on a wall that you can't touch or see or look at a magnifying glass. So your only information is like potency and if you like the name, like that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, I wonder how, how many customers actually want to know more. I would assume most do. Right. Similar to you, you're walking in there, you're like, okay, all I got to choose from is the name and potency. It's like, I wonder if, if there are customers that would love to see more, they'd love to have more to help them make the best decision. And like right now, something that we're investigating on this topic is when you have a certificate of analysis, COA, showing you what the, the crop is testing at, you have uh, total terpenes as a percentage right? Per pound, per gram, similar to potency, 18%, 20%. But then you have the breakdown of all of these other terpenes. And there's, there's some that are considered dominant, meaning in higher concentrations than others, and then others that are considered novel. And it can be, it can be multiple. Like you could have 15 terpenes being expressed in one, one cannabis flower. And the question is, does total terpenes matter more than individual? And if if total if total is more, that means it should be stronger. It should smell stronger, right? But we don't think that's the case because we've had some that are one percent terpenes, and my gosh, it is incredibly it's, it's, strong. It's absolutely the individual ones because different scents are more dominant. And yeah. you know, we've done these experiments with uh, different terpene uh, companies where they set up, as Kimberly was saying, they set up these displays, and you can go and uh, at MG Biz, uh, you know, one of our partners was was doing that. He set up a display and you can go and smell these. But I, I think what's missing in the smelling of this is the combination of how they would smell together. And also what is the effect that, that they produce together? So there is a, an education factor of, okay, you have this and maybe mercy by itself smells skunky or diesely when you mix it together with beta caryophyllin and uh, you have some little, you have a little bit of a difference. And guess what? Your effect may be completely different based on the cannabinoid, the miners and the terpenes mixing together. A, a bud tender, I, I just can't believe that a butt tender would actually have this conversation with somebody that's walking in, uh, that Kimberly's walking into this dispensary. Uh, you know, they're going to talk about the packaging they have. I don't think they have the uh, the education. Which is insane if you think about it, because really what I would love is more like when you go to like, a, what are those things for beer called? Distillery, like a distillery tour yep. and you do the flight. <laughs> beer is like what, $12, $18? But weed, you're spending like 60 or 70 and you get no experience or any education because I didn't know anything about wine until someone told me, oh, this is supposed to be oaky or whatever bullshit they tell you. Yep. <laughs> and I need that level of education, too, on weed. Yeah. Like, tell me. Well, it's, it's funny. It's funny we're talking about this right now because I'll, I'll admit here internally we've we've spent some time lately on on answering the question: How do we better educate the customers? 
And it's coming down to we need to educate on all levels from cultivation, talking about sustainability, talking about how these crops grow, why we grow them this certain way, to also post-harvest. How do we ensure the qualities that determine their buying habits and buying practices? And then start to unpack this complex topic around terpenes. And, you know, there's when I, I was in the hemp industry before coming into cannabis, and the hemp market, you know, um, has has been has been a very challenging market to participate in, mainly just due to how fast it's spread throughout the U.S. and the volume of the product in the market and how that influenced the price and everything else. But you've seen that market take multiple different paths, which in some cases I feel are now what cannabis is thinking about. There were hemp producers that were all over terpenes with hemp in dispensaries on the East Coast, and consumers loved it. They had huge, beautiful rainbow circles in the wall walking through every single terpene and the effects supposedly given off by those. And that was how you influenced people's preference on hemp flour when they didn't buy based on potency because there was no THC in the flour. So in my mind, it's been proven that this is what customers are interested in. The question is the delivery and how we how we properly educate so it's not too complex where you bore somebody. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's it's uh, you know the, even even having something they're comfortable. The, the rainbow example, I mean, that's a great example to be able to show people like you know these are different herbs. But the the biggest challenge in this is getting the cultivators and the brands to participate in the testing. How many products are there that are not even testing for terpenes? So you go in, there's no consistency. You have this one that has, you know, 20% THC. This one is 20%, but they tested for their terpenes. You're comparing apples and oranges. So that's that's the, the challenge. We can educate, but we have to get everybody on board to say, we're going to test for terpenes. We're going to educate people why the importance of entourage and terpenes and minor cannabinoids. And then hopefully... Uh, no offense to all the bud tenders out there. I think they do a great job. But hopefully we can get somebody different that's actually doing that education than a, yep. a bud tender. Uh, if you look at the, the model. No offense. No offense, bud tenders. <laughs> no, offense. no offense, bud tenders. But, uh, you know, like uh, that, that's not the way that, that's not the way it should work. It doesn't make any sense. Look at the European model. Look at the South American model. Look at all the other models. In you, You're having a therapeutic product that is delivered to you uh, by a $15 an hour or $16 an hour person who says, hey, man, you know, I just did some dab hits of this. I think this is going to be good for your back. Well, that's not the way we should be delivering uh, a therapeutic product. Uh, you know, Germany's uh, going to legalize next. What are they doing? It's going to be covered by insurance. A doctor is going to prescribe it. You're going to look at your medical records. You're going to go and get it uh, at a pharmacy. A pharmacist is going to give it to you. They're going to look at your polypharmacy to see if there's interaction between some of the medications you've taken with your uh, phytocannabinoids so you can have a really therapeutic experience. We're, we're past that. In California, we've been doing this since 1996. I mean, we should be the beacon. Like, the light should be here, but it's not. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't know how to change this yet. Yeah. I'm just bitching. Yeah, you are. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, especially coming from a cultivator who I, I watch these plants and I see these things being produced and we smell them. And it's like, gosh, there's so much more to this plant than just potency. You know, 
I think uh, at least through here at Harborside, we're able to do this through all of our retail locations in the Bay Area. And I think we'll be able to start bringing some consensus to how to deliver this information in 2022. But yeah, it's going to take it's going to take the whole industry moving in this direction in order for customers to care enough to buy based on it. I have a question that referred that both of you mentioned uh, a a while back, but I don't understand when you said the stability of a cultivar. What does that mean? And how do you how do you control? Are you talking about like not the SOPs and the soil and all those variables? You're talking about the actual genetics is unstable. Genetic stability. So in in other crops, you know, you have very, very strong uniformity. You have, you know, very stable female or male plants, right? Within uh, cannabis and within cannabis genetics and breeding, um, there are, are some genetics out there that are not as stable as others. And therefore you can have issues with hermaphrodites and plants going male or, you know, not being completely female, which is what we what we want, and therefore getting pollen in your system and pollinating other plants and causing... But stability. also, aren't they prone to different diseases in the, and things if they don't have stable genetics too? Yeah, I think we could we could wrap in resistance to, to disease within the, you know, the, the term stabilization, but, um, but there also hasn't been enough breeding. Is it a time uh, thing? The, is that why? Yeah, it, it takes you just time. need to it have takes multiple. time as well as it. Well, yeah. it, but also we're crossing, right? So if you're, that's why yeah. what I was saying. If you have, if you have a plant that's been around in Afghanistan, let's say for you know a thousand years, and you're using that plant, but we're not. We're we're using other plants, crossing with other plants, and making these different types of plants. So we haven't had enough time to stabilize those uh, those cultivars yet. Well, it, and I think it's incredibly challenging to even start focusing on it when we don't have planner utility patents on <laughs> cannabis genetics. So True. why would anybody be incentivized to put that, you know, those resources into stabilizing something when they can't even put a patent around it to keep them safe with the effort. So that's, that's a challenge. And right now you're right. Everything's a hybrid. And I, I don't believe in the sativa or indica being true species, uh, but uh, I don't, it's very hard to have confidence in in the names that are given to the genetics, unless you're working with a group that has, let's say, a certification process, or they know the original breeder, or something like that. But when you say patents, yeah. it made me immediately think of Monsanto, and like that made me have like, <laughs> you know, negative thoughts. But I might not have the whole picture because what I'm guessing from how you're talking is that genetics are everywhere in horticulture, and that even the petunias that I'm buying whoever that so- original source is has a patent on yeah, whatever. It's, it's yeah. Monsanto. It's Monsanto. They have it on the seed. Kimberly. Yeah. So a, pa- <laughs> a patent is just like a legal security on genetics on a new cultivar. So it's kind of unfair is what I was go- trying to get to when about that energy I had towards Monsanto. Cause that's one part of the conversation <laughs> that's, that's breeding practices. Right. That's not yes. necessarily patent. But like patenting genetic materials on a seed is a standard practice is what I was trying to. Yeah. And, and you think about it, it's Which readers wouldn't be incentivized to be in business otherwise if they couldn't patent and rely on, you know, um, rely on selling that as their product. If they were just to put a seed in the market, anyone could breed with it. 
they wouldn't be incentivized to produce anything better. I don't think the average person knows that because I always just, it's always presented in the news like this evil company is like my Monsanto corn. But like now that you're saying it's no different than like a font on your computer, like someone created it. I have to use a license to use a font. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I given, think, yeah, given the rights and then, yeah, they, they I think licenses out to others. I think they're combining two different things and making it sound like uh, they're evil because they're saying genetically altered or genetically modified products. It doesn't mean it's the same thing as they they patented a a seed. Uh, You know, corn was this big uh, crop, right? And then they genetically modified it for uniformity. So now it's a stable, uniform you know how what it does in our bodies as a genetically modified crop. That's that's to be studied. But I don't think there's anything wrong. We're genetically modifying or altering all kinds of different species. Uh, and if you're patenting it, you're patenting. You own that. You put in the work. Why not? But but let's say within within cannabis, let's say I want to cross I don't know gelato and G four O G. Let's say I just want to cross those, and then I have some progeny from there. I, you know, variety trial it or pheno hunt it, and I find one that actually performs well. I would love to just patent that so that that could be, let's say, if I were a breeder, a variety I could offer to the market, sell, and actually, you know, stay in business. It has, it doesn't. The patent's not tied to, you know, some of these complex breeding practices, which many frown upon and should in some cases. So the pattern is just legal protection to help people stay in business with new varieties. And that's also part of the work that you're doing, or we'll be spearheading. We we are not doing any breeding. Ah, um, currently, um, we are working, though, with about uh, five different breeding companies to trial genetics with them so that we will constantly integrate new and better genetics into our system. And we're relying on them as that's their focus and only choosing, you know, partners that we feel are approaching breeding and, and working with new varieties in the proper way. I, re- I read somewhere that you're also a musician. You play uh, piano. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I, I took piano for about 13 years and actually um, originally went to college for classical piano performance. So that's funny. You've seen that somewhere. Yeah. I was um, going to, I was going to ask you what type of music is it? It didn't go into the, there was a mention of it. I, I try to, I try to do a little bit of uh, homework, but I try to find interesting things because people ask you all about horticulture, but I want to learn a little bit more about you. So I mean, yeah, it's classical yeah. music. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Very much classical. So uh, Beethoven, Mozart, Debussy, um, Gershwin. Uh, yep. I, I went to college for classical piano performance because my grandfather was a traveling uh, classical piano performer. Oh, um, And so that was, you know, I took piano my whole life. Absolutely loved it. Um, but then we did it in college and then realized how hard it is to be a musician, especially someone who plays the piano classically. It's like, you gotta be, I had to be incredible to make a decent living, you know, and be able to accompany those who are singing or be able to sing while playing. And, uh, I can't sing worth a darn. Um, and I, I did much better just focusing on piano. If somebody singing while I'm playing, it, it causes my brain just doesn't work that way, you know? But uh, but no, I yeah I loved it and I still have a piano today. So, uh, did you ever try to kind of go into different types of music? Uh, because you know it's it's hard to make money as a classical pianist, but if you're doing pop or something like that, maybe uh, that's there's more opportunity there. 
Yeah, no, I, I played trumpet also, and I tried to do jazz um, with both right. of them, and that's why I liked Gershwin. He was kind of a, a bridge between classical and jazz, and I loved that. And I love Frank Sinatra, and I love kind of big band. Um, and so I, I did a lot of that throughout high school and college. Um, but then, yeah, horticulture stole my heart, so to say, um, and I, I went in that direction. So There seems a lot of parallels to me, though. Yeah? Was that just a stoner thing to say? <laughs> no, I, 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 I mean, I don't know. To me, I think that it just takes a lot of patience. So I yeah. think somebody who's grown something takes a lot of patience and somebody who's playing piano. My daughter plays piano, so I have a little bit of experience in that. I, I play uh, a couple of instruments extremely poorly. Uh, so I, I don't consider myself a musician, but she plays and, and it takes a lot of patience. And I'm assuming that's why I have a brown thumb because I have very little patience to grow <laughs> anything. So I think that maybe that's a parallel, uh, Kimberly. Well, that, I was thinking that, more of like jazz around like, you know, the job. And I've really enjoyed this conversation is like, it seems like very abstract. You don't have a ton of data. You don't have consumer data. We have maybe there's not a ton of SOPs about like how all this stuff was like we're still in a very nascent stage of this. So I imagine that there's just like a lot of experimentation. And so it was like the experimentation part that I was correlating. So maybe I made a super abstract jump in my own mind. <laughs> no, no, I see that. I see where you're coming Between... from. And I, I certainly I certainly, you know, at, at different times acknowledge kind of similar parallels, you know, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I guess I under starting to understand why, you know, we each like what we do. So. Yeah, for sure. All right. I have uh, a few questions to, to ask, which we ask all our guests. So there's three questions and then there, there may be a bonus question too. Okay. And then, uh, right. be done. So get ready for these. Uh, get a kind of uh, really think. Um, all right. So please describe your first experience with cannabis. Um, my first experience with cannabis was in college in South Carolina when I was actually pursuing piano. Um, and, uh, I was offered it one night by a friend and, um, I, I, I part, partook, partake, whatever. Um, and, uh, they drove me home and I remember sitting in the back of their car and it was at night and looking out the window and just thinking I was in this magical world while they were playing music. In the Love it. And it was it was a fabulous first experience. Yeah. Now, it was a, a joint, or yes. what was the yeah. Yeah. okay? Got it. Um, well, I mean, we're we're music uh, people, Kimberly and I. And I don't know if you can see all the vinyl be, behind yeah. me. I'm a big music uh, fan. Uh, do you remember what the first concert uh, you ever attended was? <laughs> uh, Rod Stewart. All right like that yeah he's he's uh coming back he's uh gonna be touring now yeah i think he's trying to <laughs> but yeah to. no well, yeah right. I, so, I saw him in beverly hills uh i don't know with covid I, I don't have a good sense of timing but maybe a few months ago he was looking super super skinny like super skinny really so, I don't, yeah i don't know what that was all about but yeah uh hopefully mm -hmm. he'll uh he'll be good enough to uh to play uh what was the last concert you attended uh, um, Def Leppard was the last concert. Also cool. Uh, I'm going with this theme. I don't know. I'm just curious. What was the, do you remember what the first album you ever bought was? First album? Uh, yeah, it was a, um, I can't remember the name of the album, but it was a Garth Brooks album. It was, uh, 
he had the black and red checkered background on this CD. Uh, but yeah, it was right. It was. Uh, it's right. no other you. It's not the one you like, Kimberly. Uh, the thunder rolls in. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't on that one, but yes, yep, that's the same guy. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, what has cannabis meant in your life? Hmm. What has it meant? Um, if anything, it's just provoked so much curiosity to me. You know, I've, I've been fascinated by the controversy about it. Um, I've been fascinated about how it's never truly, you know, from a health perspective, hurt anyone. Um, and at the same time, I've, I've enjoyed, you know, how it's helped me in certain ways at different times in my life. And then getting into horticulture, just the lack of understanding that we have from a plant science perspective, it's just, it's a new world for industry, for, you know, personal use. And so if anything, it's just provoked curiosity in so many ways. Very cool. All right. You qualify the, for the bonus question. Okay. <laughs> uh, please describe what your room looked like growing up. Now, I know it's not the easiest question because you moved around. You have different places, but pick a room that you think what you want to describe. Uh, so growing up, I was very active and very kind of, I guess you'd say technical. Um, and so uh, we usually painted wherever we moved. My room, dark green. Um, and we would always have like walking sticks and, um, all different kinds of, you know, jackets and belts to like hold tools and things on. And, um, it was just technical. And then at the same time, we'd have footballs and soccer balls sitting around and, and then a, a piano on the side. So cool. No, no posters or anything like that on the walls. Um, uh, not, no, not too many posters. I think if anything, it were more, you know, I have quite a religious family. So we had, you know, kind of religious, you know, uh, things that meant a lot to the family, probably up on the wall, little scripture sayings and things like that. But, uh, but yeah. Well, cool. Um, so I wanted to kind of end with the, an offer for you, because you were talking about sleep. So if, if you want, uh, I'd be happy to extend the offer of uh, our endo DNA test for you, I don't know if you know what, what you know my company does. So we yeah, have a genetic I, test. I saw that. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested, there are some genetics that are associated with sleep disturbances, and uh, maybe that way you can take a look and see if uh, what some of them are, and maybe now you can create your own uh, you know chemovars that are more specific to you to address your own personal needs. So happy to extend that to you. No, thank you very much. Yeah, I'd be very interested to see what it says. Yeah. yeah, cool, man. Yeah, yeah every, everything else is just in experimentation, right? So that, yeah, that would be very interesting. <clears throat> it's, it's a, it's a, and we'll, we'll go into this, uh, uh, you know, off, uh, offline and all that stuff, but it's really interesting to see the patterns of some people that have predispositions to different stressors and how they affect your sleep. And it's sort of this revolving hamster wheel because, like, for me, if I have, I have bruxism, which is growing your teeth. But it only shows up if I'm suppressing my levels of stress. So if I have a predisposition to something that uh, that activates a stressor, I don't deal with that stressor. It actually shows up when I sleep in grinding my teeth. And if that happens, I have a biometric device that measures uh, the quality of sleep that I'm getting, et cetera. And at that point, I can see that my quality of sleep, I may have slept 
seven hours or whatever that is, which is really rare for me, but my quality of sleep wasn't good. So my heart rate variability was pretty standard. My oxygen levels were pretty low, like all these different things. And that's all because I'm grinding my teeth. And because I didn't get my quality of sleep, I'm agitated during the day. So you're in this hamster wheel. So all these things kind of, you can kind of put together and create a, a profile for yourself. And then you'll know, okay, maybe I have a daytime formulation that has a little bit of linalool, which can help to calm without being sedative. And maybe at night, I look at something that's a little more sedative with mercy and a little bit higher THC. So just a thought. But I'd love to bounce that off of you as well, because I don't have the knowledge on the plant side as much as I do on the human genetic side. No, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see what could come of it for sure. Cool, man. Well, Travis, I want to really thank you for your time. Where can people, if they want to contact you or Harborside, where can people find out more about you or contact you or uh, whatever it is that you want to promote? Sure. No, they can certainly contact Harborside, you know, through our different retail locations or, you know, if there's anything regarding um, social media, I'm, I am on LinkedIn. So great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining and happy new year, by the way. It's our last show of the year and I really appreciate you coming on uh, right the day before New Year's Eve. Yeah, no, of course. Appreciate being here, guys. Nice to meet All you. Right. Nice Enjoy. meeting you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.